You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Power Athlete Nation, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. We are welcoming back Mr. Mike Boyle, third time. So I find it interesting, Mike, we had you 2016-2020 pre-pandemic, and here we are. And we're going to explore the, I want to explore the business side of strength in the industry. So, man, welcome back. We're excited to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. Wow. I can't, it's 16, 20, now 23. Okay. I'm getting back faster every time. That's good. (laughs) So that means I'll be back again in 25. So that's a lot of longevity. You know, it's good that we're just not flashing the pan. So we've been doing this for a minute. Yes, sir. It looks good anyway. Yeah, the studio came came good. It's a it's a it's a green screen, really. So it's like a Marvel movie back here. It's a joke. Well, I was gonna say, I was, I was trying to look. I was squinting <laughs> a little bit. I'm like, maybe you're it like, is. it does look like a Marvel movie. Yeah, like a Tony. We did such a great job, Mike. Yeah. Well, Mike, man, it's some ups and downs. When we we brought you back the second time, you were just getting into the online space and exploring more of the group training space, and then COVID hit. So I imagine that transition into the online space was a pretty, pretty great move with the, the pending pandemic. Yeah. It, it ended, honestly, the, the, not as much the online programming as the online certification really was a great thing for us during that time. We kind of hemmed and hawed about putting the certification online. I didn't want to do it. And, um, the guys, Ravi from Inspire 360, I don't know if you know Ravi, but Ravi encouraged me to do it, and we did it, and then that ended up, there were some months where, honestly, that's what carried us. We had some great months doing, you know, with people doing the online search, so it it worked. And now, I mean, it's like it never happened, which is great. <laughs> you mean COVID or? Uh... Yes. Or, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, well, definitely. It, it, we've it, come it, back. It, this year was was right about a hundred percent, maybe a hundred and one percent of our best year. So we have no complaints. Yeah, no, definitely pivoting to the online. I mean, we pivoted. I mean, obviously, we taught in person seminars and then pivoted to an online, just for the fact that the people that were coming to the seminars didn't have the foundation that we needed to effectively have good conversations. There was all this like you know, ancillary, just beginner type stuff that would really bog down the seminar. And so the idea was like, let's put all that stuff online. Let's get people kind of pre-qualified. So when they show up, we can hit the ground running. And we felt that that was such a much more rich experience. But then also when COVID hit and the seminar biz is kind of like the in-person deal, it uh, seemed like we were ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that was how we set ours up from the beginning was that they had to take a pre-test because one thing I realized that the person that you're describing, I call the seminar killer. And when the seminar killer shows up and has no idea what's going on and asks a million questions and bogs everything down, you think, how did I let this person in here? So the way we set up the certification is you had to think you have to get an 80 on the pretest in order to be able to come to the actual live event. And 
that made a really, really big difference for us the same way in terms of we almost completely eliminated that seminar killer. Yeah, we used to run into that where um, people had, I don't even know why I'm here. I didn't look at any of the information. I just paid and showed up. And uh, now I'm going to ask all my beginner questions. I got pretty much prefaced in all the information we sent you. So I'm with exactly. you on that one. Or, or present what they were doing within their gym or facilities <laughs> and look for just a, a justification. Hey, is this right? Even though it has nothing to do with the present lecture, it was just way off the wall. And mm -hmm. yes, yeah, seminar killer. I wish we had that term back then. That's a good one seminar i uh i think we just called them the uh the dementors remember from harry <laughs> potter like the demons that showed up and would suck the life out of people we just called them dementors yeah. so seminar killers dementors same thing and now the the seminar is back on the road you traveling your, your team was just in austin sorry to miss it but man how how have have you seen that grown and exploded since the implementation of the the online course as well does did that help? i think it's it stayed about the same i don't know if the online has helped it but it, the big thing that it didn't do is it didn't hurt it. And that was one of our concerns was that we might affect the live events by putting it online. And again, the guys from Inspire 360 that that we did the online version through said they didn't think that would happen. And they were right in terms of I, I don't think and I don't know. I'd have to look harder at the numbers, but I would think our live event numbers are pretty similar to how they were. but. The, the ancillary revenue of the online has been much, much better because as you guys know, online exposes you to people all over. I mean, literally the way it is now with the internet all over the world. So it's not even the fact that you can get somebody who's maybe in Wyoming or Montana or someplace like that who can't get to you, but that you can get somebody who's in Sri Lanka or you can get somebody that's in literally any place that you can imagine can now simply get online and take the search. And they, and again, I don't know how much you guys have exposed or explored sort of the language part of it, but Hindi is the most spoken language in the world. Number yeah. one. I did not know and that. So when you start thinking for people like us, we haven't penetrated India. We haven't penetrated Russia. There's so many huge kind of population base areas where we're having zero impact. That's one of the things that I get excited about. I just had somebody just translated my book in Russian. And honestly, I think they bootlegged it to be truthful, but I'm not even mad because the fact that it's in Russian is great. It's That means that there's a, a whole mass, literal mass of people who are being exposed to concepts now that weren't before because of the language barrier. And probably in when we talked in 20, I think I had said, uh, my book was one of the first ones to get into Spanish. And that's a huge market that wasn't being well penetrated by fitness people. And most of what you were seeing in the Spanish speaking market were books written primarily by professors. Somebody had told me, and again, I only know what someone tells me in those languages, but that mine was the first book written by a coach that had gotten into the Spanish fitness market or the Spanish speaking slash reading fitness market. So I mean, the great thing for us that are sort of in the education world is that there's there's so much more to still do. Well, but it, what was wild is I didn't know that there was this entire uh, fitness bodybuilding community with like fitness expos and wrestling and like this entire thing in India that's fucking massive. And yeah. I went and dug in a little bit and, uh, and like in terms of like supplements and bodybuilding and just performance training. I mean, it's really like just scratched the surface for 
you know, one of the largest populations on the planet. I mean, he said, uh, you know, wherever they speak in, it, what's the uh, the language, the dialect in India? Hindi is the language. Hindi? And I think it's maybe India, Pakistan, there's maybe Bangladesh there's, are speaking some derivation of that language. I looked one time. I don't know what made me look. I thought it was Mandarin was the large, was the most spoken. I did too. And then I looked and I could be wrong and it could be in dispute maybe, but I just was trying to look at, okay, what percentage of the world, because my book was starting to get published, my the new functional training for sports in a lot of languages. And my first thought was, wow, this is unbelievable. Until I started to realize how many, like it, that it wasn't like, I remember thinking Spanish, Spanish would be amazing. And then I looked and I forget what it was, but it something like 10th. I, I would have thought it's, that um, so I just pulled up the numbers. So there's uh, 698 million speakers of Hindi, uh, one, what do they say? Like almost uh, over a billion in Mandarin Chinese. And then, oh, okay. So uh, Mandarin and, was, and then, yeah, maybe I didn't take Mandarin cause I was already in there. I don't know. Maybe Hindi was the one that we weren't hitting. And then but English, obviously too? the biggest. Yeah, it yeah said it's yeah uh, Hindi, Mandarin, and then obviously English is number one. Spanish is four. English is number one. Yeah, they said the most the most spoken language in the world is English. Cite your sources. Uh, lingua really? <laughs> so, Wow, I would have thought we were third or fourth, but uh, hold on, let me pull this up. What's well, the number one language in the world? English. Um, why do they keep coming back to that? Well, John and I we we booked it. The Spain seminar. So we were going in and we were getting translated, which I always find fascinating. Uh, been to Seoul, Korea, had translated into Korean, and then we've been to Spain as well. Yeah, we've been to Spain, we've been to Argentina. Had, it's it's interesting in person because you almost got to take your two days, your 16 hours of information and cut it in half because you got to <laughs> say one thing and they got to say the exact same thing. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, Go to trainheroic.co forward slash power athlete HQ. It's exactly the same because I don't get tangential. I don't end up telling stories because I I did that the first time in terms of thinking, okay, I need to have half as much information. And I really didn't. It ended up, but what I realized is that I probably turn every slide into two slides by roaming off. When, when someone is translating word for word what you're saying, you're very specific to what's on the slide. Whereas I'm not, I realized, I think I watched somebody go before me and realized, I looked at the translator and thought, there's no way that guy just talked for like three minutes. This person is not going to be able to repeat anything remotely close to what he said. And then I realized, okay, I'm going to just bullet point this. I say it, they say it, I say it, they say it. I finished in the exact same time, which makes me realize 50% well, of my time is. Well, I, I think uh, John needs that advice. Yeah, no, uh, he's the storyteller here. Well, no, but I, I've always believed that there uh, is a narrative that goes with all the information. Like if you make a definitive statement like this, uh, I always have like a supporting story or something that like kind of buttresses it up. And when we got into the, uh, I think we were in Argentina, I like made a statement on something. And then I kind of told this like little, I don't know, antidote associated 
And the dude looked at me, nodded his head, and then spoke for like five minutes. Very and fortunate. And that dude was a rock That star. guy was really good. And I speak uh, enough Spanish um, like to know that he was like I could make out what he was saying and it was pretty close to what I was saying. And I even asked the guy, I'm like, you're pretty good at this. And he's like, uh, so he was working for CrossFit, um, translating all the CrossFit stuff. So the guy had done this pretty extensively and we've been doing it all over the world. So we happened to like luck out and get that guy. But then we went other places. Like I know when you guys went to, uh, to Korea, <laughs> like you guys said something and the people were even like more confused by the translators. No, no she did a great job. Oh, did I, she? I found it fascinating. Uh, writing on the whiteboard, that then she would write the same word because like Spanish is using the same letters, but then yeah. Korean is, is symbol. Like, yeah, I've just found it fascinating. I took a bunch of pictures of like, Hey, this is squat in Korean. Just, I thought that was cool. Uh, what I always appreciated with the translator is you, you know, you say a joke or something that you find funny at least. And then you just wait for the punchline to hit by the translator and see if it hits in the crowd. So it's like a, a 62 minute delay. I don't know. I always find that hilarious. Well, I found too that we, I would tell uniquely American jokes. So if I tell a joke about happy days or the fawns, I realize <laughs> suddenly I'm looking at my presentation and realizing, okay, this is non-translatable. This, these people probably never had happy days as a show in Brazil. And as a result, they don't know. So that was the other thing I used to kind of have to go back through and kind of sanitize and think, all right, I got to take out my references to Dragnet. You know, I've got like Jack Webb saying only <laughs> just the facts, ma'am. And then realize you are completely, I mean, for this, uh, yeah, like even uh, like I'll make some references like um, well, Fast and Furious always. Well, lands. no, like I um, I made a, a a reference to what was it? Uh, the natural Robert Redford, like pick, like pick me out a winner, Bobby. Be like. And then yeah. I realized that nobody had seen that movie. And I'm like, how have you not seen that movie? Well, even in America, that is. Are, are you kidding me? That's one of the single greatest movies ever. Yeah. Like Robert Redford's That's greatest movie. Like it's opinion, one. Of, it's one of the first movies I ever showed my kids. Like I, I know my daughters. I was like, we got to watch The Natural. There's like a list of movies. That's I, still they, to this day one of my favorite movies. Yeah, you know, they've well, seen I, it, but I don't know if they can quote it. Sorry. I end up with lots of 70s references that only I always look around the audience and think, okay, there's maybe 20% of the people at most who are going to get this. But I still use them anyway, because I find it really amusing for myself. But in a foreign country, it's a complete waste of time. And yeah. I realized that. Yeah, no. Uh, I, I and, and, and a lot of the back. jokes, too. I mean, just because uh, English has like this dual meaning, which is so difficult for people when they come to this country to actually learn English, because there's so much inference and double meanings in words. And, uh, you know, we use it in our, in our humor and it just falls on deaf ears. So, yeah, I, I think you're great. Just bulletproof yeah. bullet points. My, uh, my niece is married to an Italian guy and she was saying the other day that, uh, fingers and toes, apparently the same word in Italian. And so she said her husband constantly is screwing it up saying like, he'll point at his feet and say, you know, my fingers are really freezing today. And she's like, no, no, no toes but apparently i think it's like you know like phalanges would be like we would look at phalanges and say that could apply to either segments and that's the way it is in italian apparently which i didn't know but yeah there's there's just a lot of nuance to language when you when you get out and try to present we were lucky we've done a bunch of stuff in brazil and the brazilian translator we have this guy his name is bruno he translates in real time through headphones so he's talking He's five seconds off of you the whole time, so you never stop. It's the most amazing thing that I have ever witnessed in my life. We would, went out with him a couple nights after it was done, and I looked at him and thought, like, 
I, I have no idea. And you saying, uh, you know, the laughs uh, and the laughs would come. You'd be like, okay, five seconds, boom. He tells the joke, the laugh comes and you realize, wow, they're following along even with the bad jokes. Is, um, you know, the global landscape right now, especially geopolitics is really very interesting if you're into that stuff. Um, and, you know, the guys that we've been working for BJJ are Brazilians. And so because, um, you know, they're native Brazilians and they live here, uh, I plugged more into like what's happening in Brazil and and it's really fascinating, especially like their move to like socialism and and yeah, I don't know if you saw all the riots and all that yeah, that's going it, on. It is. But it's I mean, like they had that election, they felt this. I mean, it's been really fascinating to watch as you see this geopolitical landscape kind of pivot. And uh the comment they made the other day is like they feel like political refugees now. Like, can we still go home? How's it gonna go? Like, what does this landscape look like? And I always wonder for, you know, seminars and strength conditioning, because like the biggest issue is like, you know, could we go in and teach seminars and like access this new market? And, you know, you were talking about like Russia, for example, like translating the book. I mean, there's a situation when they're involved in a war in the Ukraine and, uh, you know, Ukraine produces 70% of the grain for all of Europe. And like, I mean, I'm looking at this thing from like our seminar point of view and like, man, I wonder what these, which of these countries we can go to where we'd still have a viable market. Well, there's or whether you'd even be able to access the market. I look because for us, we were doing really good in China, but suddenly I think U.S.-China relations are probably not what they were at the time that we were going over to China. And so you're right. I mean, the ability and just your desire to maybe be in in foreign countries that are less stable. I don't think I'd be in a hurry to go to Russia right now, to be honest. No, and, I, uh, the other one with China and whether or not. Um... And this is the difficult part about China. You never know if the numbers are accurate, but uh, you know they have this interesting upside down pyramid where they have and I and this stuff popped out with COVID. Uh, you know, a major part of their population is like fifty plus, and they're really you know because obviously they had the one child uh, policy for a long time. So now they have this really decreased lower end, which to me is really like within you know coaching and people coming up through this. Like those are the people that would be accessing your seminar, working it. Hopefully, you know, somebody 50, 60 probably isn't buying your, you know, online seminar coming to the events. Um, so like looking at that in terms of populations and like, you know, young people, for example, like, you know, is this information still as important? So no, I, I just, I'm, I'm really fascinated by like the geopolitical landscape, especially when you look at war and all these other stuff. So it's, um, yeah. And then you look at it in the strength conditioning market and being like, who's our individuals who's our clients you know what's the pool that we're gonna pull from and then trying to access those we're gonna shock a lot of people in this podcast when they're gonna realize can you believe these guys were suddenly talking about geopolitics and online sales they're gonna i, they're gonna I personally think this is important because we're we're in the industry and have been for a long time and we're thinking globally yeah when a lot of coaches just getting into this they can't see past their own sets their own reps their own clients so i think it's a it's an important reach we're yeah, no, I mean, um, you know, as you know, the, uh, you know, and since we got into this online stuff, it's become very prevalent that, you know, people are so obsessed with like sets and reps and numbers and, you know, oh, is this moving here? And they want to argue within minutia. And like, to me, it's so far beyond that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like, are you moving well? Uh, like, regardless, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, I you laugh know. at people all the time. I'm like, I, I, I can explain periodization to you in like 30 seconds. Don't do the same thing for more than three weeks. Yeah. And if, End of seminar. Let's go. Let's do something. <laughs> uh, I, I did a consult with a guy yesterday and he was asked me a little bit about like hypertrophy and muscle growth. And I just kind of, you know, pried him a little bit and was like, you know, like, what do you think a 
major factor for like hypertrophy would be, or like, what do you think? And he was like, well, um, you know, I, I think muscle soreness is a good indicator. I'm like, no, it's not. There's nothing that has to do with muscle soreness as an indicator for hypertrophy. That's just muscle damage. And then the other question was, uh, um, you know, and I was like, you know, you gotta have a little progressive overload in there. So if like you squatted like four sets of 10 at like X amount of weight, if you were to do four sets of six, would you do the same weight? He's like, yeah, probably. I just do extreme, you know, I don't, and I'm like, yeah. you, you wouldn't add weight to the bar, like realizing that what I did for 10 probably wouldn't elicit the same response at that weight at six. And you, and that was like some foreign. And I was like, man, like this feels so basic, but then you still have to remember there's people that are still wandering through the, through the woods with a flashlight, just looking for answers. Oh, that I, I would say that's the majority in all honesty. Uh, the vast majority are people doing exactly that and and getting caught up on the minutiae and getting caught up on the the stuff that doesn't really matter and not looking at the big picture stuff and realizing that, like you said, progressive overload. My I have a, a great female athlete group, you know, all national level people, and they know what 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 do I do this week? I think I probably said it last time I was on the podcast. You go up by five pounds or two and a half pounds. That's what you do. Like it's not, not the least bit complicated at all. And these girls are really strong. And we have done, if people came in and said, Hey, I want to really want to analyze the program. Mm, you're probably not going to see anything that uh, is going to approach atom splitting in your uh, thought process. It's pretty darn simple. Don't do the same thing for more than three weeks. And like you said, progressive overload. Make sure that one of those sets is either heavier than the most you've ever done or more reps than the most you've ever done. And you're probably going to make some progress. Yeah, no, I mean, progressive overload works in two ways. It's not only weights, but reps. And, you know, the guy was like, well, if, if I can hit 10 with this, um, like once you hit 10, uh, put weight on the bar. What if you get six? He's like, great, great, come back the next week. Try to get seven, get eight, you get 10, add weight to the bar. And uh, the guy, like, I was like, you know, I don't mean to like open up the curtain behind the program and show you the Wizard of Oz, but like, you know, there's, I pick one movement that we do some form of like, you know, uh, to failure damn near close. And you kind of look at it over the course of like a whole week. Like you can't do that every single day, but like every week you can test one thing and push it and you just have to be able to balance volume and intensity and hope for a little super compensation on a deload. And, uh, it doesn't seem complicated to me having looked at it, but when you ask, start people asking these questions, I realize that there's almost this like smoke screen that they get stuck from. And I'm like, dude, you guys are stuck in the idea of like, well, is it better to do a seated hamstring curl or a laying, laying hamstring curl? I'm like, the hamstring works in two ways. You can lengthen it or you can curl it like a bicep. Which one works better for you? Or do both. Or what do you have access to? Like it, it uh, the complexity, as, I, as we go farther down the road on this, like there's less complexity, but I feel like people get stuck in that piece. So such as age. Quote. In the beginner's mind, there are many choices. In the expert mind, there are few. Ooh, great. Mike, I, I liked a post that you had in, back in December, but it was a clip from one of your staff meetings, and you're speaking about boredom. And this jumped out to me because I've had the same experience in conversation with different coaches. They're challenging their athletes because they're bored applying the tools to their program, especially at the high school level, level with high school football. It's throwing movements their athletes are not necessarily ready for because coach is bored. So, uh, I mean, speak to that. That must have been a moment there you were teaching your staff, hey, this is an important lesson here. What drew that out? Yeah, all of those clips actually are staff meeting clips that are really 
what we've done is we've just shared our internal education with everybody through our MBSC TV site. So if somebody wants to watch our staff meetings, they're able to log on and watch every staff meeting we've ever had. And we just were finding, we have to keep reminding our coaches things like that, things of a very basic nature in terms of your client's not bored, you're bored. You might look at this and think, God, we've done that. I've done the same thing 30 times this week, but your client did that thing twice. Mm -hmm. So your client would need 15 weeks to do what you've done over the 30 sessions that you did this week and trying to get them to keep remembering that it doesn't need to be fancy. It doesn't need to be complicated. And you go all the, I mean, all the cliche stuff, right? Brilliant at the basics, however you want to, whatever cliche you can choose to, uh, to apply to this, but that's what we want them to understand is that don't confuse your boredom with their boredom. Powerful stuff. Yeah. We aim through our, our training programs to educate as much as we can. So even if they're, you know, through, or it feels like a similar cycle, well, this is what we're doing and aim to educate so they can, you know, come at it with more intensity is, and intent. Is that, um, I did. What, what was it in the eighties? The muscle confusion was that a Tony? Horton? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was a big, I, uh, I, big leader principle. I fucking uh, like blame him. Like this <laughs> idea that somehow like muscles get confused and we have to constantly confuse them because they're intelligent and that if they know what's going on, they're not going to grow. So by, you know, bringing this thing of just randomly applying these different movements, we're going to confuse the muscles into doing something <laughs> that we intentionally are trying to get them to do. And it was like, it, it's like the perfect pushup. Like nobody would have got it unless it was, unless they attached, uh, invented by a Navy SEAL. So, I mean, remember the perfect pushup? They're like invented by a Navy oh, yeah. SEAL. It must be good. So, I mean, like yeah. that little bit of marketing for that, I mean, but just with the muscle confusion deal. And I always, I always felt that that was weird. I mean, like, why do I want to confuse my muscles? Well, we don't want them to get stagnant. And I was like, well, don't I have to get really good at the basics? So if I'm randomly attempting different things, I'm going to become the master of nothing and the expert of limited individual it didn't make a ton of sense to me but, but we get into think, this and people have it if you think about it the the muscle magazines were the precursor to the internet in the sense that there were a bunch of people writing articles that probably weren't training because i i mean i know i had a friend who used to ghostwrite for muscle magazines and so his article he'd say wait you know my 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 article is going to show up by you know the under the byline of famous bodybuilder x i won't say names because i get in trouble when i say names but uh and then realizing that this guy was writing and they were just looking for the editors were looking for interesting takes they were looking for ways like you said muscle confusion whatever it was because saying the same thing over and over again for 12 issues a year the way that they did gets boring and if you just kept saying, oh, yeah, it's basically the same stuff, but that's where you realize you go back to that sort of in the expert minds, there, there aren't very many choices. You go back and realize, wow, there really aren't that many choices. When I look at what we're doing, like some, like you were talking about, I watch some of these high school coaches sometimes in there. They've got, you know, bands hooked up to the bar and they've got, I, I watch people. The one I love now is people have bands helping them lift to the bar. I love that one. I look and think, okay, that oh. doesn't any you mean sense they at put all bands uh on like the squat bar and they attach on the top of the rack yes. so, it, like, so it's, it's literally a, like progressive assistance i think it's a good move why don't i like you that. just why don't you take some weight off the bar like why do you need i i but you look and think who can this be helping 
And, uh, and maybe there yeah. is somebody in some particular situation where you could analyze it and say, oh, no, but for this guy, that might be really beneficial. I, I struggle with the whole concept of. I always thought it was for uh, geared lifting. So when uh, when they, they it's called the lightning method. And I saw Will, uh, Louis and those guys do it out of West Side. And the reason being is the weight was lighter at the bottom because the energy of the suit was most expelled. So they were like when they were doing like a non like geared squats, let's say they it was it's basically what they're doing is trying to change the strength curve where everybody else when you're raw lifting the heaviest it is is at the bottom when you're your most right. vulnerable they, that's where they are they're at their strongest because the most energy is expelled out of the suits so they were just trying to like change the strength curve so when they weren't wearing all their rubber band outfits they could effectively kind of mimic what they were doing and then unfortunately you have all these high school coaches that are watching the west side thing thinking that you know louis is you know somehow speaking to them in some you know cryptic language and then they start applying this stuff. And uh, I never thought they understood actually the practical application of why they did no, it. No, I hadn't even thought about it. from the, And that makes sense from the perspective that you present it as, which very well might be. But again, you look at that and think, what small percentage of the population is this sort of geared powerlifting? I mean, I look at people, same thing, you know, bench shirts. And again, I was a competitive powerlifter at one point. I, I get it. But it's such a small subset of the actual population and th as to be honestly like in our mind inconsequential i it makes no difference to me what because i remember years ago meeting this guy who held a couple of bench press records and i talked to him about i said well how you know what do you bench without the shirt i think he was like seven something with the shirt and he was like oh, i'm like a you know like i'm a mid fives guy raw and i was like and seven something like that was just i i looked at this and said this is like an elastic band contest it's basically an engineering feat where you can create this elastic energy within suits and shirts and, and you kind of look at it like, this is so stupid i'm sorry i look at it it's completely pointless well not to one up that uh, i was out at west side and we floor pressed and i think i floor pressed 505 and uh aj roberts at the time i think he pressed like it was like 505 510 like he might have beat me by a few pounds he throws the shirt on and bench 925 that was it, it was aj that i talked to that's exactly who it was yeah, yeah it was yeah, and I, so I, mean, I had I, we were at a seminar together he was a super nice guy yeah but i just i just was i wanted to know i said okay give me because I, I grew up like i was when i power lifted it was like super suit one had just been invented most of the guys were lifting in wrestling singlets up to that point and and suddenly, like Super Rap Two had come out, so there was some this knee is, wraps. Uh, this is Zang, um, this is Marathon Nutrition. This is George Zangus's company. The guy that trained me in high school invented the super suits and the wraps. Yep. So this was the very yeah. First, it would yeah. it would have been like late seventies, early eighties. Yep. Yep. And yep, I probably bought from him actually because I, I yeah you had to call and talk to him on the phone in Powerlifting USA. Well, yeah, then you could talk to anybody on the phone. Then and yep. people just picked up the phone and answered you. But you're right. I mean that's. It was, but it was the very beginning of that. And honestly, because I had become so detached from it, I had no idea where it had really gone. And it was funny, AJ was the guy who, when he told me his his raw lifts versus his kind of, you know, fully geared up lifts, I just thought, this is silly to me. And again, yeah. somebody it, in the powerlifting. It, it was over 400 pounds he was getting out of his shirt. 
So yeah. that was when they went to those backless ones and there was the technique stuff. But I figured I was pretty good and, you know, 500 pound floor press, 500 pounds. And they threw that shirt on and it was like 925 off of, off of a one board. And I'm like, holy shit, yeah, dude. But you look at that. plus pounds? But like, who cares? Like, what's the, what's the sort of the, I guess the, the real world relevance of that is absolute zero. It, to me, I mean, I, I can't figure out how it would make a difference. The but. only thing I could think of is there's so much pressure. So like once they put that shirt on and all that like elasticity is stretching across your body and you're bringing what a thousand pounds down. The only thing I could think of is like the extreme internal pressure is somehow preparing them to go to the bottom of the sea at a thousand foot. So I was like, you guys are all going to become deep sea divers, right? She's going to drop you a thousand foot because you can handle the pressure. And, uh, and I said that to that, Bill Gillespie. Yeah, I, <laughs> he, like, he like starts scratching his head and was like, what? And I was like, yeah, extreme pressure. You guys are good at handling it. And he didn't get the joke, but and he's a funny dude. But yeah, what's he got? Like a 1400 pound bench. It's wild. Unreal. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I mean, uh, I think at least with powerlifting, like all the gear and all that stuff just makes people like, ah, like they can't identify with it, but seeing a dude walk up there in a pair of shorts and a, and a set of, you know, shoes and get underneath and, you know, squat something amazing. Like, I really think that's what kind of rekindled powerlifting was actually the raw lifting because the average individual could identify with it. You're looking at this other thing and you're like, hey, this guy's five, four, 350 pounds and he's wrapped up like a rubber band. I can't identify with that. Right. Well, it's the same with bodybuilding. I think there was a time that when we were young and stupid that you looked at bodybuilders and thought that if you worked really hard, you could look like that. It didn't really come across as this incredible, horrible drug contest. And then the guys just got so gargantuan that eventually people lost interest because people thought, I mean, I can remember looking at, at Frank Zane when I was a kid and thinking, I'd love to look like Frank Zane. I'd die to look like Frank Zane walking around on the beach. But then I'd look at the guys winning the Olympia in the 2000s and think under no circumstances would I ever want to look like that, that that's just bizarre. You look like some sort of circus freak or like you said, Marvel movie, like somebody drew the Hulk or one when, of those guys. When was the transition? Like I, I always think on the bodybuilding stuff. I mean, obviously, um, you know, they haven't invented any new steroids since like the 50s. So it's really like the advent of like uh, insulin and growth hormone and some of like that, you know, was the, the big difference. But like looking at like Arnold, um, you know, like pumping iron and those guys like that, you know, even though Arnold amazing looking like it actually when we watched pumping iron, it felt like it was something that was somewhat attainable. Like yeah. If you trained yeah. hard, you could, you know, look like or at least, you know, show up to the gym and look like you were in pumping iron. And then all of a sudden, like I remember seeing like Flex magazine and, you know, Dorian Yates is on the cover. And you're like, holy shit, dude, this looks like a completely different human. And e even today, uh, they just had the, what was it, the Olympia? Olympia. They put, uh, it was, I think it was uh, Ronnie Coleman and Dorian Yates. They kind of like Photoshopped them into like the top lineup of five. And Ronnie still would have won. He was bigger than all those dudes and like just more massive. And, you know, Yates' conditioning was better. And they were like, these guys would have still finished one or two or two and one, however you want to, you know, judge them. Even today, 20 plus years later. Yeah, but I think that I think the change came in the 80s because when you look at I can still remember there was like Frank Zane and Boyer Coe and Schwarzenegger and there were there was some it was beginning to move to the freakish level a little bit, but it was not what it became probably in the 90s. And I know even for someone like me, I mean, I used to go, I can remember going to bodybuilding shows 
as a kid and watching, I can remember seeing Boyer Co. guest pose at something down in Connecticut and and thinking that it was pretty cool and then getting to a point where thinking, I, I, I don't want to be part of this subculture anymore. It, it doesn't appeal to me. We we had Jay Cutler on the podcast. That was that was a fun experience chatting, and it resonated with my high school athletes that I'm coaching because they're all on TikTok, and Jay found TikTok. So the quad stomp, like all my skinny wiener kids, they were all about the quad stomp. So I find that interesting. And, I mean, since we had our, our last conversation in 2020, TikTok has exploded. So it's like the new fitness magazine, rather than flipping through, you get 10 seconds of attention to try to educate and empower athletes. So, Mike, have you seen the 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 student athletes coming into your gym, like more empowered, invigorated? Because they oh, no, they can go back. It's gone backwards incredibly in terms of I have more people now talking to me about bodybuilding and body part workouts. I thought that was completely dead. I I honestly didn't think anybody and I see kids all the time. Yeah, I went to the I went to the Y and hit legs. And I'm like, really? What said, did you like find like you're talking about, did you find a copy of Stay Hungry or a copy of Pumping Iron? And and yeah. suddenly you're back into this 70s bodybuilding culture. Is that what you're doing? And then I realized no, it's all being driven by TikTok and Instagram. And there's all these influences on there who are bodybuilders. And yeah. I, I'm constantly talking kids out of body part workouts. I'm fascinated by that because I have not had that conversation in 20 years. Of somebody and being like, I'm just going to train I've quads today? In, yeah, like, I've been like in the sports world maybe. I, I don't really know, but I just have not had that conversation. And suddenly I find myself having every kid who doesn't train with us on a normal, regular basis is doing some sort of body part oriented bodybuilding program which is so incredibly regressive in my no. mind. No, I mean, the, um, we run into this constantly and, um, you know, I, I experienced this when I first left the NFL and was, you know, approached by CrossFit and started working where people asked me what I did for my training. Hey, what did your training look like? And I'm like, why? I mean, like, I'll, I'll tell you what I did. And they were like, Oh, I would like to do something like that. I'm like, why? Like, this is, uh, this is the training that I did as a 10 year NFL player. Like, I mean, training is not universal to everybody like this was the specific way we trained and the, everything worked this way and if you haven't done all the work that leads up to it i don't know if you would reap the same benefits like these kids doing a you know body part specific program it's like it's real easy to get real strong and then after you're already pretty jacked like if you look at like what pro bodybuilders do they're trying to bring up certain you know body parts into this but if the problem you guys are at is every body part needs to be brought up yeah i mean it's what yeah, pumping iron, what I recall is a lot of squat and barbell movements. A lot of rowing and a lot of curls. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they did a lot of rowing. You remember? I just remember them like on like the seated uh, cable row and just Arnold just fucking doing like sets of 100 on that. I got to rewatch. It, it, like there's so many gems in pumping iron. And like the one that I go back to all the time is when the guy asked him like, Arnold, what's the best set to or the best rep range to put on muscle? And he's like, the next one, if I can get five, it's six. If I can get six, it's seven. It's whatever the next rep is, the one that builds muscle, which is the, you know, standard work to failure, progressive overload. I mean, they knew it back then. Yeah. And now, and now I argue against people constantly with this idea of like, how many reps in reserve should I be? 
hey, if I'm going into this set, like how many sets or how many reps should I leave in the tank? Like reps in reserve. I'm like, what do you mean leave in the tank? Well, if I can do a, you know, uh, like if I can do uh, 12 with this set or 10 with this set, I'm only going to do eight because I want to leave two reps in reserve. And I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's a big thing now too. People are like constantly asking this and I'm like, uh, I don't know, like just fucking do it till you can't do it anymore. And, uh, you know, if you yeah. get six and you fail on seven, then six was the number. Yeah, we, we do it all. That's how we train all the time. And I'm, I, I always look at people think, you know, reps, when you have people that are weak and don't train very hard, and then you're telling them to not train very hard. <laughs> you're kind of like I'm the opposite in terms of, I want to look and see how many more reps can you actually do than you think you can not don't give me like a number where you're going to subtract from, oh, it says 10, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to get a weight, I can only do eight, you know, I'm going to only do eight. I look at it, think, no, maybe try to get 11. See yeah. if you can get 12 today. Like it's so much a, I don't know. And, and that's what I mean. I, I, it's the sort of, it's, it's dumbing down by dumbing up is what's effectively happening here is you have, um, I, I actually am just, I just finished rewriting my second book. So in a three or four months, one I wrote called designing strength training programs and facilities will come out and I updated it. I wrote it in maybe 2004 or five, but I updated the whole thing I, to be current, but it just, cause the other thing I talk about, you know, things like APRE and auto regulation. I love, you know, auto regulation. And then I, I literally put a quote in there because the guy said, well, auto regulation isn't really training by feel. I'm like, well, what is it? If you're saying, that you're going to figure out how you feel that day. And that's going to tell you how many reps you're going to do. And that's auto regulatory training, but it's not really training by feel. I'm, I'm like, I'm really confused here because, you know, we've got APRE and we've got auto regulation and I kind of, maybe I'm showing myself to be more of a dinosaur, but I'm more with you guys in terms of, Hey, how about you just put a weight on the bar and see how many you can do. Yeah. And, and, you know, we always talk about, Amgrap as many good reps as possible. And even I'm okay with a couple of not good reps. If somebody's really trying, when I get a young kid who's thinking, I want to try to bench 225 for five, and his butt comes off the bench in the last two, I'll tell him, I really want you to keep your butt down in the last two, but I'm pretty psyched that you got 225 for five. You know, it's yeah. like, and you've got to be constantly balancing that between, and we may have talked about this in, in, 2022 but one of our coaches used to always say the real essence of coaching is knowing how shitty is too shitty <laughs> like at what at what point do you look at it and think okay that was unacceptable versus looking at it and saying that was really good effort now that that's a funny statement because that's subjective because there's a lot of things in the way that i look at it like if i would be embarrassed to show this to somebody or post it somewhere that I believe should be like kind of the breakneck. Like if, uh, yeah, if, absolutely. If, if I'm shooting this video and I instantly, I'm like, Ooh, I don't want to delete it. But then I see people post shit where I think to myself, like, and I see this for division one programs or I get tagged in something for a football team where I look and I think to myself, Holy shit, I can't believe they posted this. And more importantly, they outed this kid. And like this string coach looks like a fool for the fact that they're cheering for something that looks like a, you know, fucking dog shitting a razor blade. Yes, no, exactly. And that's, but that's the line you look at it and think like sometimes I post stuff all the time and then people will say, oh, oh, well, you know, he didn't, he didn't fully extend on the third chin up. He didn't get his chin up over the bar on the last one. And I'm like, yeah, it was a 17 year old kid trying to chin 80 for a triple. I don't expect it to be perfect. I expect it to be really, 
a, like a, a, an all out effort. And, you know, if he kicks his legs a little bit or, you know, he bobs his head a little bit, I'm perfectly good with that. Now, again, if it's, you know, rep one through three and they all suck and you look and think that just was terrible. You're right. I mean, you'd, you'd hit delete and you tell the kid, okay, that wasn't good enough. But I do think there is, there's a law, a lost line here of that. All right. Where, where are we looking in terms of quality of repetition? And if everything is perfect and kind of effortless, then it was probably effortless. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there, there should be a little grind in there. If you're doing eight reps, seven and eight should probably be a little bit hard and seven and eight should probably not look maybe as pretty as one through six, particularly with developmental people. I, I think when you get somebody who's a really, really good lifter, you might look and think, Hey, I'm going to get a beautiful succession of clean reps. They all look exactly the same, but I don't think that's particularly real world. Uh, the other thing that seems to have come up and then gone away and now it's come up is uh, overtraining. So there's like a big thing. I remember like 10, 15 years ago, everybody was really concerned about overtraining. And then it kind of went away. And now I actually got a dude asked me on the console. And I even made a joke that uh, the only time I ever hear about overtraining is from people that aren't very strong. I've never heard a strong person <laughs> been like, uh, you know, I'm overtrained because if they're strong and they don't feel good when they go into train, they probably just take an extra day off. And I even said to the guy, I'm like, hey, man, like the program, uh, like you should feel good every single day, ideally, some days you're not going to feel good. And some of the days that I felt the worst ended up being some of my best training days. And if I had used HRV or, you know, I feel overtraining or I'd let myself get in my own head, I would have missed out on those training days. Um, and the guy was like, well, you know, how come you did that? I'm like, cause I also played in the NFL, which means that I had to play every Sunday, not every Sunday. I felt the best was my best day, but I still had to go out there and make money. So if I just wanted to do HRV and that's why I, I kind of like for professional athletes, I'm not real big on that stuff just because the fact that I don't want, I would not want them walking in, uh, you know, on game day being like, ah, you know, I'm in the red. How am I going to perform on this? You know, walk in, you know, fucking howl at the moon, do whatever you have to do to run out the tunnel and go out and have your great day, regardless of how you feel. And uh, that's been something that I uh, keeps popping. I'm, up to me I'm right with you. I've people have said that to me, you know, a lot of the monitoring, the wellness stuff and, you know, having people fill out questionnaires and what I said, when we started doing that, when we very first started doing basic monitoring stuff, what stood out to me was that I could, I could tell you exactly what was going to happen. I could look at my team because my team at that time, a hockey team, but my team was three groups of guys, really talented guys, moderately talented guys and grunts. The really talented guys were going to tell us everything was too hard and should be easier. The grunts were going to tell us nothing was ever hard enough and should be harder And the guys that I grew to listen to, I'd listen to the guys in the middle. I'd look at the guy in the middle and say, if my guy in the middle said that workout was a little bit too hard, I looked at that and thought, hmm, I need to pay attention to that thought. Whereas I knew for a fact that my my talented underachiever, no matter what we did, if he thought, if I say it's hard, they'll lower it, he would automatically always answer, that was like a 10, 10 out of 10, way too hard. The fourth line guy would always be like, oh, it was like a three. You know, we could do way more. And so I started to realize that in some ways, a lot of this data collection was a waste because you have to put the subjective personality component into that data to really then be able to analyze the data. Because otherwise you get what in my mind, you know, whatever, 
dirty data, corrupt data, however you want to look at it, you look and think, I could be not doing things or stopping things or curtailing activities or increasing activities based on somebody trying to, you know, Jedi mind trick me into getting the result that they wanted to have come out. So I've, you know, and then people get mad because they want you to be a tech fan. And I'm in general, the one thing I am becoming a fan of, and I, which I wasn't, and I've been very vocal about, I used to think the VBT thing was dumb. And I'm starting to think that as people, as the guys using VBT get smarter, they're getting more actionable data out of VBT in terms of being able to look and say, okay, if you can't move the bar at X speed, that's probably indicating that something's not right. Well, yeah, but and isn't it specific? Like this is where I got in with the VBT um, and we tested a ton of it. It became very specific to certain athletes. We oh, yeah, no, it's specific it, to you. Like you yeah. can't, yeah. you know, There's you would like have this. to look at it and think like if I looked at you and said, you know, whatever, you know, you're, you're like your days, you got, you know, your days, you're popping it on the bench. You're at 0.6 meters a second or whatever it is. Then I know that's, that's you and that's your good day. But if I look at you and think that same day, you're at 0.4 or whatever, and I don't do enough of it to really be super well-versed in the numbers, but I do think there is something there in terms of being able to monitor um, actual readiness that goes beyond subjective, particularly yeah, no, if you're not you. telling guys what the numbers mean. If you're just looking at the numbers and not letting them know so that they can't figure out Okay, should I try to speed up or slow down kind of thing? Well, I mean, uh, you know, your intent in being able to move the bar from point A to point B and then back and the intent and the speed at which you use it with compensatory acceleration was a massive part of my training. But trying to explain that to people and then being able to measure it for each individual, because there were certain people that I met that uh, were really strong, but everything just moved slow. And then I met other people that were real explosive. But the minute that the weight got too heavy, had zero ability. So, like, I met people that were stronger, but like the stronger people tended to move slower in like you know the different percentages. Where I met some people that were really explosive but didn't have the top end register strength, and they were like, "Well, how do you you know uh, like how do you consolidate those?" And I'm like, "Fucking everybody's different." Like, uh, you know, like we can't look at the VBT and like especially when we're using the Tendo and the different things. Like we were trying to like paint a picture for everybody, and it just didn't work. And so then my comment was like, it kind of comes down to the individual being able to test different things and then find what works for that individual. And more importantly, test it in terms of like uh, what I call gambler sets, you know, for Kenny Rogers, you know, some days you got to hold them, some days you got to fold them and yeah. knowing based upon the speed now, all of a sudden, like, Hey, let's fucking go for it today. This dude's moving way faster than he should, or he's moving like shit. Let's pull it off and not fucking bury him. Yeah, no, that's it. I do think, so I've come around to that for a while, I thought, because what was happening before is it was just making people try to move weights as fast as they could, which wasn't really the goal. I think now seeing it more as a monitoring tool for those 80% and above sets and to be able to look at that and think, okay, where's, you said compensatory acceleration. You think, I mean, Hatfield was talking about this in Science of Powerlifting in 1981. It, Dude, uh, George, George Zang is the old power lifter that trained me. Um, he, uh, you know, he and Hatfield were friends or contemporaries because he sponsored him for his big, you know, he wore the super suits. So when I was 14, George talked about Fred Hatfield and compensatory acceleration. And then when I ended up meeting Fred and we started interviewing him, I mentioned Zangus 
and he was still pissed because I guess George had owed him money. He screwed him on some money. <laughs> and so when he was surprised, he's like, wait a minute. So George spoke positively. You know, we fucking were mad at each other's money. I'm like, yeah, I mean, money aside, but he never discounted what you had done. And he spoke about you often as if you were friends. And I could see him having a regret. And he was kind of like, ah, George passed away, didn't he? I'm like, yeah, he passed away. And he's like, ah, I would have liked to have reached out and talked to him about it. You know, and it was kind of a funny thing, but like they had had this uh, you know, he fucked me on money based on this lifting me, but you know, I was a 14, 15 year old kid and George talked about him often and said, Hey, Fred Atfield, compensatory acceleration is a mechanical advantage increases. So to speed, if you can learn this, your ability to accelerate your hands and your body come playing football will make you different than individuals, other, everybody else. Yeah. He was a Hatfield was, I mean, when you go back and read those books, he was light years ahead of his time. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, um, like the torque meter where he figured out like how much force he was driving into the bar and was able to kind of figure out, like, he's like, I didn't have to train with a thousand pounds to know that I could move a thousand pounds. And he's like, when it was 700 and I was able to move it with this much force, I knew that like, based on all my equations, I knew what I was able to hit. So I didn't have to take the pound yeah. to get to the weight. I mean, so and, fucking and sure. he actually, he was using an isokinetic power rack yeah. at a time when most people hadn't even thought about stuff like that. Yeah. He, um, he, uh, we were talking about bench press and, uh, you know, I was always a big believer in like, you know, really shrugging the shoulders back, pinning the scapulas, shortening the levers and really like getting a ton of tension and then working on a straight line. And he was like, you know, while you might be able to bench more, it's going to fucking destroy your shoulders. And he goes, I actually invented a machine or a bench where the back was cut out and it actually pivoted in a way so that your scapulas could move as you benched because we found that when you pin the scapulas and you drive the, you know, the arms against it, you'll just blow your shoulders out and wear your shoulders out. So the way that we were doing, it was actually teaching them to move. And just like him talking about doing it, he's like, you'll bench bigger weights. And I'm sure you did, but you'll have zero longevity in benching. You need your scapulas to move. And like, that was completely counter or counterintuitive to how I was taught to bench. And I'd benched what 535 for a triple. And, uh, and then I ended up having shoulder surgery twice and, you know, like it was, it, it was one of those things where, as he was saying it, I was like, ah, shit, dude. And now when we teach our athletes to bench, I tell them like, don't torque it too much. I want the scapulas to move and they should be able to move underneath the load. Yeah. He's, he's a fucking smart dude. Yeah. I appreciate his, he, he's a doctor in philosophy. So Dr. Squat. Had a well, yeah PhD in philosophy. Well, in the other one, he told us a story. He was on a airplane uh, ride, and he was you know he wasn't tall. He was like five four, five five, five six maybe, and you know two forty, and was sitting next to some gymnasts, and was like, oh, I was a gymnast after I got you know within you know college gymnast, and these guys were looking at him, and the guy called him out. I was like, you weren't a fucking gymnast. And Hatfield goes into the aisle while the plane is flying, and kicked up into a handstand and was doing freestanding handstand pushups in the aisle <laughs> on this plane. And did like, I mean, what was the number he threw out? Like it was like 50 or something. I mean, the number was so much. We were like, wait a minute, freestanding in an, in a, in the, the aisle on a moving airplane, you did freestanding handstand pushups. He's like, I think I did a set of 50 and then kicked down. And like, I mean, just fucking amazing. Like who knows if it's true, but it was an amazing story. And then we met somebody that either was on the plane or knew the gymnast later on that was like oh yeah no my buddy was there or something so we actually had a cl uh, collaborator on that you had some some verification yeah i mean but just an amazing dude so rest in peace r.i.p mike i know you work with a lot of young coaches my, my last question for you here 
and you have this sense, this feel, as we mentioned, okay, this is too much. This is the boiling point. We're going to call it. How do you aim to educate the younger coaches that you're working with to get a sense of the feel versus being so stuck to what's on the program paper? One of the things that that's why we really emphasize for our young coaches that they need to train themselves mm. because I, I don't, I think that feel is developed by being in the weight room and not developed by watching. And so we put a lot of emphasis with our coaches. Like one of the biggest part with our internship program is that you are actively participating in the program. We tell people right from the get-go, forget about what you do for training for the, whatever, 10 weeks, 12 weeks that you're here, you're going to train the way that we train. You're going to experience. And we do that even from a conditioning standpoint, riding the bike, all of those things, because we want them to have all of those feels because I think that's what helps you when you're looking at someone and thinking, okay, are they, are they really struggling? Was that, what did that look like? Did that look like what the last rep should look like? Did that feel like what the last rep should feel like? Because I do believe there is, and this is probably, we I always talk about this. I think one of the drawbacks of the way that we do things is that our coaches probably, they don't all come from a lifting background. Mm -hmm. Most of them will come from some sort of sporting background. And then we'll try to expose them to this process of training. But I think the people, I always say, you know, looking at like, we always say, looking, okay, what are we going to go up to next? What weight are you going to do? We always talk about this idea kind of a picking the next set, picking set three. And a good lifter, you guys would be able to watch somebody do a set and immediately say, do X, meaning go up five, go down five, do the same weight over again. But someone who hasn't done it themselves probably will struggle with that particular task of looking and they'll make some mistakes. And part of it, I guess it, the good thing is that our coaches will make mistakes and they'll say to a kid, oh yeah, go up, you know, go up 10, throw 10 more pounds. And then the kid will get buckled and they'll realize, wow, okay, that wasn't what I thought was going to happen at all. And nobody got hurt. It's kind of a no blood, no foul kind of thing, but it's part of that learning process. So as a, I think the immersion is really important, I guess. No, I mean, it's very hard, especially in the training. If you don't, if you never lifted heavy weights to be able to understand what it necessarily looks like. And I think there's an intrinsic piece to that. And um, I've, I've always said, uh, especially for programming, if you've never done your own programming, how do you really know? It's like a chef that doesn't eat their own food. Right. And even you know? from a conditioning standpoint, I tell people, you know, if you haven't, you don't know what three, 300 yard shuttles feels like if you haven't done three, 300 yard shuttles. And I used to be very critical of coaches with their conditioning programs. Cause I'd look at a program and think that guy's never done that. And I know he's never done. Yeah, if you've never run 300-yard shuttles, like three of them, with like three to four minutes rest in between, especially with like the, what, what was it? We did uh, 650s, and then one time we did uh, 560s. The difference yeah. was fucking astronomical. Oh, and then you go to 1025s. Like you go, I always said, the 25-yard course is twice as hard as the 50-yard yeah. course. Yeah. And, you know, there's twice as much acceleration and deceleration as they're, you know, incorporated in that. And what you realize with people is that the, the stress is in the, uh, the acceleration and the deceleration, but I used to just say that I was like, you got to do it. You've got to go and you've got to run the conditioning. You've got to know what that feels like. 
because then you won't make stupid statements. You won't say to somebody, oh, we're going to do seven 300s, you know, and we're going to try to get them all under a minute. And you're like, if you've ever run 300s, you know that that's yeah. not possible. Yeah. But people, you know, it's almost you put your ignorance on display sometimes or your inexperience on display or, you know, particularly in strength and conditioning. Sometimes, you know, uh, you get the big meathead strength coach who doesn't run at all, who it's really easy for him to to prescribe these horrendous running workouts because he realizes I'm never going to have to do that. <laughs> but he doesn't have that sensation of, well, I, gee, I wonder how that feels for my 300 pound lineman who weighs about what I weigh. And does that guy look at me like I'm a total tool? Like this guy has no idea what he's doing because he just asked me to do something that's so off the charts, stupid. Yet they think that it's okay. Now we've, we've been doing, um, a ton of like we've been uh, working with these professional BJJ fighters. So we've been doing a ton of their conditioning uh, on the echo bikes, um, you know, uh, and doing a bunch of Tabatas because it's all concentric. And we found that if we could do a bunch of concentric stuff, we can really push the aerobic capacity and it's not going to kill them for all their training volume. And if you get into that and we'll do, you know, one set of Tabatas, they rest three minutes and we'll come back and the goal is to basically be able to get, what was it? Uh, twenty-four rounds eventually. You know, to, uh, eight. You know, rest eight, and then the final one. And then they have to get them within like a peak performance. We have like this whole kind of rubric on how they do it. And uh, periodically, we'll jump in and do them. And I like as I'm in there, all of a sudden I'm like wilting and dying and knowing it's coming. And it's good. I mean, it's it's important to remember. And then the same deal is we go over and roll with those guys and have learned to you know go over and train with them. Just because I figure if they're going to come learn from us. We should be able to learn from them so at least i know intrinsically what they're going through and what the demands of their sport are and i think so sometimes so far with strength coaches they get so far away from it that you know we used to see the football all the time where guys out there screaming at you and he's never strapped up a fucking day and you're like how oh, this fucking guy doesn't know what he's going through yeah it's absolutely true yeah you got to lead from the front I think that's a good note to end on awesome. mike thank you again for joining us we won't wait three years next time if people want to learn more about what you're, what you got going on, everything that you have to offer, where should they head? So strengthcoach.com is usually the best place to go. Cause that's the everyday talking about training, talking about training, talking about running your business, really talking about everything every day. Uh, as I said, we've got our MBSC TV site, uh, MBSC.tv that has a lot more of our educational content. So the, as I said, the staff meetings are all on there. Anybody that we have who comes in as a guest speaker is on there. That's got, I think someone said now we're up to about 600 hours of either meetings or lectures that are on there. So I think those would be the two big ones. And then if people are interested in the certification, it's certifiedfsc.com, which stands for certified functional strength coach. And that's where people can go and sign up and figure out whether they want to go take a live course or whether they want to go and, Take an online course. There we have it. Amazing. All right, Coach. Thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Bye. See you. Thanks. Bye.